1: Hey listeners, it's Mishi. Last week we released our 50th wartime diary. This week is Yomazikaron Hazikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. And as a way of marking this milestone, and these dates, Yochai Meital and I will have a series of onstage conversations in New York and Cleveland. We'll discuss the process of creating wartime diaries, talk about some of the challenges we've encountered, the dilemmas we've had, the insights we've gained, So if you want to hear what covering the evolving story of this war has been like for us, we'd love to see you at one of our events. All the details are on our site, IsraelStory.org. And meanwhile, wishing us all calm and peaceful days ahead. Hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and this is the season finale of Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. Okay, so for the past three episodes, we've been on a journey, a musical journey, made up entirely of the stories behind some of Israel's most iconic tunes, stories that somehow capture the bubbling tensions, the complications, and the intricacies within Israeli society. We've heard all about our national anthem, Hatikva, and about the dueling anthems of the Six-Day War, Yerushalayim Shel Zahav and Yerushalayim Shel Barzel. We've peeked behind the scenes of Mitachat Lashamayim and explored the ongoing love affair between Israel and the Olympics of cheesy pop melodies, the Eurovision. Last episode, we heard the tale of Zohar Argov and the rise of mainstream Mizrahi music, in what was, till that point, a music scene dominated by Ashkenazi culture. And today, we've reached our last episode of the miniseries, Mixtape Part 4, War, Peace, and Bumper Stickers. Now, we've already encountered some of the country's most important singers and musicians, Arik Einstein, David Broza, Nomi Shemer, Meir Ariel, Izar Cohen, Zohar Argov, all pillars of Israeliness in different ways. And what many of them, not all, but many, had in common was their army service. See, from the earliest days of the state, the real trendsetters, the real hitmakers, the real stars, were almost exclusively the boys and girls of the military bands. That's right, the military bands. Of course, most of the songs these bands released were exactly what you might expect from artists in uniform. An ode to a tank, a hymn for a fighter jet.
3: Kimat A
4: ballad
1: about a soldier missing his sweetheart. But the song at the center of our next story didn't fit that mold. Act One A Song for Peace. Here's Hannah Barg and our mixtape band.
0: Lashem echla lot, la bokeh le hair. Hasaka, filot, otan u Mi kavanero, uve a nitman. lo I thought <laughs> that the people who are הבו, aviu את היום כי
5: Just like Meir Ariel, Yankel Rotblit, an international relations student at the Hebrew University, was called up to the Six-Day War as a reservist. But unlike Meir, he was severely wounded while leading his platoon of paratroopers through Abu Tor in Jerusalem. Yankel lost a leg, but somehow managed to keep his joyfulness. Recuperating after the war, he became convinced that, despite the military triumph, despite the fact that Israel had tripled its size in less than a week of fighting, What the country now needed most was peace. So he sat down and he wrote a song. A song for peace. The lyrics made their way to the most prolific Israeli song composer of the day, Yair Rosenblum, who was living in London at the time. And Rosenblum, his head was elsewhere. He had just seen an exciting new show that opened on the West End. A hippie counterculture musical called Hair. Looking over the text, Yair immediately realized that Yankel's song could be his opportunity to create a Hebrew version of Let the Sun Shine In.
0: Let the sun shine. Let the sun shine The sun shine in.
5: He got to work, composed it, and sent it off to Lehakat Hanachal. The band of the Naha Brigade, which was the hottest of all military bands. The Beatles of the IDF, if you want. Miri Aloni, the band's lead singer then, remembers hearing it for the first time. We fell in love right away with the song. The band members loved its edgy vibe and were moved by the hopeful words penned by a man who had just lost a leg in the war. They began rehearsing and slated Shirla Shalom, that's what the song was called, to become the centerpiece of their next big roadshow. The days were the days of the ongoing War of Attrition. And while the army was bolstering its fortifications along the Suez Canal, Miri and her bandmates traveled up and down the new Egyptian border in armored vehicles packed with musical
6: instruments. Through the days, we were performing like three or four times in the outpost, and um, above us were shooting and bombing and everything and we we were there uh, between the the beds of the soldiers under the ground and we singing with uh with unplugged uh, guitars the whole night it was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun
5: shira shalom a song for peace was an immediate favorite among the troops
6: the soldiers loved it so much
5: but not everyone was as enthusiastic One of the main naysayers was the legendary IDF general Rechavam Zevi, ironically nicknamed Gandhi. Gandhi was a hawk, a fearless fighter who, during that very same period, was busy leading daring mir dafim, chases, after Jordanian and Palestinian terrorists. Here's Eitan Haber, who was then an up-and-coming journalist and a good friend
7: of the general's.
8: I was very close to Gandhi, the head of the Central Command, and he didn't like this song. He thought it was defeatist.
5: Lines like, lift up your eyes with hope, rather than through the rifle sights, were troubling to army higher-ups, who naturally thought that soldiers should keep their eyes on the target. And even worse, was singing, Alta Bitu le'achor, hanichu lahochim. Don't look back. Leave the fallen behind. For an army that had just buried hundreds of its boys, it seemed demoralizing and just plain insensitive. There were those who wanted to ban the tune altogether. It quickly became a matter of public debate. The younger generation, by and large, liked the song.
8: I told Gandhi what I thought. That the song was outstanding,
7: incredible,
8: and that it captured what many Israelis were thinking at the time.
5: But the old guard wasn't convinced. Shirla Shalom was even discussed by a Knesset subcommittee, no less, that ultimately decided to let the band play. Yet not everyone in the military fell in line. On one evening in 1969, the Nacha band's van pulled up for a big performance at the Central Command. Everyone showed up including, and this was somewhat nerve-wracking for Miri and her friends, one of the most vociferous objectors to the song. Yup, you guessed it, the revered General Gandhi. The Nacha band gave a good show that night, but they left out their biggest hit.
6: We finished the program, and then the soldiers, of course, they say, shir la shalom, shir la shalom, song to peace, song to peace. With Gandhi in the
5: house, the band simply couldn't play it. You see, he had personally issued an order stating that the song was not to be sung on any base under his command. And if there was one thing you didn't want to do, it was to get on Gandhi's bad side. So
6: we said to them, secretly, when the colonel will go, we (laughs) will sing to you. The crowd, hundreds of soldiers and officers, wouldn't budge. Nobody left the place. But Gandhi was no idiot. He uh, realized what is going on, and he he stayed there. They waited and he waited for half an hour and then they started to, uh, to go and uh, we didn't sing the song at that night.
5: There was no talking Gandhi out of it. Knesset decision or not, the song, he thought, had no place in the
8: IDF. us. that's the word. That's exactly what he thought.
5: As you might imagine, the controversy just spurred greater popularity, and the song became the talk of the nation. Op-eds were in for and against it, as Shirla Shalom climbed to the top of the charts. Surprisingly, perhaps, Defense Minister Moshe Dayan and Chief of Staff Chaim Barlev were actually big fans of the song. And before too long, Gandhi was put in place. He was, after all, part of a hierarchical system and Barlev rebuked him for overreaching his authority. A song for peace had won, at least temporarily. It would have its day in the sun, and then, like most hits, I guess, it slowly petered out. That is, until November 4th, 1995. 25 years after she had taken off her uniform and stepped out of the military band Limelight, Miri Aloni was brought out of semi-retirement. She was asked to sing her old hit at a peace rally in Tel Aviv in support of Rabin Perez and their Oslo agreements. When she got on stage in front of roughly 150,000 people, she got right into the old groove. Except this time, there was a heightened sense of excitement and urgency. When the song was originally written by a wounded soldier after a war, peace was a hypothetical ideal, a nice dream. But now, in the Kings of Israel Square, in the center of Tel Aviv, flanked by Shimon Peres to her right and Yitzhak Rabin to her left, peace felt tangible. Israel had recently signed treaties with the Palestinians and with Jordan, and peace in the Middle East was potentially at least, around the
6: corner, within reach. It was like a, like a cloud of happiness won over the, the whole square, a pink cloud of happiness to see so many people coming to support the idea of Rabin that says that we must give the peace a chance. Ethan Haber. The young
5: journalist, who in the late 60s had tried to persuade Gandhi to accept Shira Shalom, was now Prime Minister Rabin's chief of staff.
8: I couldn't believe my eyes. The square was packed. There was no room to move. And Miri got up to sing on the balcony and encouraged the entire audience to sing together with her. Everyone. Except for Yitzhak Rabin. When I Stuck the
6: microphone at the mouth of Itzhak Rabin, he was like, hoo, 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 because he was a very shy guy. He
8: really couldn't carry a tune. He was humming along at
6: best. I remember that we, when we finished the song, we all laughed a big laughter. Because it's Hakabin said, I hope in this uh, deep voice, I hope that in the peace process, we will hit the nodes, not like we did <laughs> like we did here.
0: Ah.
5: A few minutes later, With the page with the words to a song for peace neatly folded in his breast pocket, Rabin walked down the stairs of the municipal hall balcony and was about to get into his car. That's where he was met by the three shots that would end his life. At his funeral, in front of presidents, kings, prime ministers, and hundreds of millions of people watching around the world, Etan Haber eulogized him.
8: After the doctors and nurses wept, they gave me the piece of paper they had found in your jacket pocket. I want to read a few words now from that paper, but it, it's hard. Your blood, Yitzchak, covers the printed words. Your blood on the paper of a song for peace. This is the paper. Right
5: then, Hopper pulled out a plastic sheet protector. Inside it, clearly visible to all, was a white page with a big red stain in the center. He began reciting the barely visible printed words.
8: Just sing a song for peace, don't whisper a prayer. Just sing a song for peace. Shout it out loud. Yitzchak, we already miss you.
1: Hannah Barg This story was written, produced, and edited. Together with Maya Kosovir and Yochai Metal. Shlomo Metal, Yochai's dad, was our wonderful dubber.
9: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
1: Act 2, Can't Afford the Luxury of Despair. Our final story of the miniseries, our final story of the season actually, begins at the very moment our previous story ends. November 1995. And it brings us back to the Israeli author David Grossman, with whom we began the miniseries.
4: David Grossman is my name. I'm 64. I was born in Israel. Uh, I married to Michal. We have uh, three children. Uh, we lost uh, Uri, our son, 11 years ago in the war against Lebanon. And we have Yonatan and Ruti and two granddaughters.
1: Last year, David won the Man Booker International Prize, and in April on Yom Ha'atzmout, he was awarded the Israel Prize, the country's highest honor. David is a man of words. He's a prolific novelist and essayist, a leading advocate for peace and human rights, and he often publishes op-ed pieces that trigger fierce national debates. But we went to talk to him about something much less literary or highfalutin. We went to talk to him about bumper stickers.
4: Yeah, every car that uh, I saw then, back then, had a bumper sticker. People felt the need to express their opinion. They felt the need to be critical towards almost everything that is not them. The bumper stickers competed with each other with their brutality and aggression and rudeness. I remember cars that I drove behind and I saw that half of the windshield is with very right-wing aggressive bumper sticker, And on the left uh, side of the windshield, they were very peaceful, hoping, and positive uh, bumper stickers. And you could easily say that this family is in, in trouble.
1: Even David's car had some bumper stickers.
4: Peace now and some some bumper stickers who supported Itzhak uh, Rabin.
1: On November 5th, 1995, the day after Rabin's assassination, David was driving up to Jerusalem. Traffic was crazy; half the nation was making its way to the Knesset, where Rabin's body lay in state.
4: And suddenly, when I was stuck there in a traffic jam, I saw on the left uh, a Volvo of settlers. And of course, when I got closer and I saw the bumper stickers that covered almost all the, the back windshield, uh, it was very right-wing and extremist and even violent bumper stickers. And there stood a guy, the driver, with a screwdriver, and he was peeling off the bumper stickers. And he peeled off the rabin, a murderer, rabin, a traitor, rabin Roteach, rabin Boged, and then suddenly it occurred to me how strong and effective bumper stickers, that we all treated almost like a joke, but how effective they are in shaping public opinion after all. He looked at the man, carefully
1: getting rid of the slogan he had so proudly flaunted till it all became a reality.
4: I think he got shocked by understanding uh, what was his very little, very minor share in this wave of violence and hatred towards Rabin these days. Uh, and really, I think he felt a remorse and, and shame. He didn't want other people to see that he carried uh, these, these uh, cries out of Rabin is a murderer or a traitor.
1: In his mind, David could trace a direct line or chain, starting with inflammatory statements made by irresponsible politicians, continuing in the offices of creative copywriters who fashion them into catchy phrases, onto drivers who adorn their cars with the stickers.
4: And in the end of this chain stands a person with a gun and shoots the prime minister. David wanted to explore that chain,
1: to decode the power of the bumper sticker. So I started to collect bumper stickers. He did this for eight long years. It even became a family project and all the Grossmans would jot down slogans they saw on the back of cars. There were right-wing catchphrases and left-wing ones, bumper stickers praising God and bumper stickers slamming religion, slogans about veganism, the army, the Supreme Court, and of course, the coming
4: of the Messiah. All of them are very, very short and Precise. And I mean like a punch to your face. Maybe because we, we are tired of complexity. Maybe because of that. But the
1: hundreds and hundreds of slogans David collected told a different story. They showed just how complex Israeli society was. How we were fighting out our private wars in public, pulling the country in different directions, drifting farther and farther apart. The Israeli spirit was encapsulated there. In 2003, he sat down with all those slogans.
4: And I took them and I I just wrote them and put them on a table. And I looked at them and I thought, what can I do with them?
1: David started reciting them out loud.
4: And I noticed immediately that when I read them, there is a special rhythm. And also that it's very easy to rhyme them somehow. Before too long, a
1: song or poem made up entirely of bumper sticker slogans
4: started appearing in his notebook. I wanted to to give the energy of the contradictions and the inner animosity, and as you said, the complexity of, of the situation.
1: When he was done, David called up Shanan Street, the leader of Israel's most popular hip-hop band, Hadag Nachash. I remember, yeah. That's him, Shanan Street.
7: I'm a musician, member of Hadag Nachash super band.
1: So one day he received this phone call.
7: It was afternoon. He called me. He said, "Hello, Shanan. This is David Gosman. I would like to meet with you." He didn't say what it was about.
1: Shanan agreed, and they met
4: up in Jerusalem. I just gave him the notebook with the bumper stickers that I wrote in a pen. I think it was still, and I said, "Read, Shanan, read it." And he read, and I started to see the smile on his face.
7: Well, I knew it was. Uh, I knew it was. Uh, it was genius. I knew that it was golden
4: and and then he took he took it and some weeks later he came and there was a song
7: אין שלום עם ערבים, אל תדנו להם רובים חמי זה אחי, אחי, גיוס לכולם, The
1: song became an immediate hit. Everyone identified something they could relate to. Right-wingers liked it, left-wingers liked it, young people liked it, old people liked it. After all, it was a reflection of Israel. Or perhaps even more so, a reflection of the various different Israels. Soon, it was an international sensation. But it's like hard to sing along with this song.
7: Not the chorus. They can do the chorus. Camaroa. Everybody can do that,
1: but it's hard because it has reishim, right?
7: Well, they do camaroa in America and camaroa in Mexico and you know camaroa in <laughs> French Canada. But uh, yeah, whatever accent we embrace, no problem. <laughs>
1: Just before we said goodbye, I asked David to come up with his own bumper sticker, now in 2018, as Israel celebrates its 70th birthday. He thought about it silently for a few moments. He's a man of words, after all. And nowhere more than on a bumper sticker does each
4: word count. Then, with
1: more resolve than caution, he said,
4: Can't afford despair. Can't afford the luxury of despair. Maybe.
1: Do you think that would be a good good bumper sticker? (laughs) No, no. (laughs) No. If you were writing your own bumper car slogan now, what would it be?
7: Shut the fuck up. That's what I would put on the back of my car. (laughs) Why? There's too much, uh, too much meaningless talk, too much shouting. It's about time to, we had some quiet.
1: I told Chanan what David had said. Can't afford the luxury of despair.
7: It's a great sentence, but he's an author, I'm a rapper, so I would say shut the fuck up.
1: <laughs> I guess it's a combination of the optimist in me. The fact that shutting up would be a problem since I basically talk for a living and my general aversion to swearing on our show but i preferred the vids version so in the spirit of his perhaps less than sexy bumper sticker let's not despair with all the complexities we saw throughout this mini series national ones political ones ethnic ones and many other complexities we touched on in earlier episodes of the season and the show With all that, you might wonder whether music actually is the unifying unicorn we set out to find. We all clearly sing in different keys with different words and in different voices. But that, I guess, is what Israel is all about. It's not that complications stop existing. It's just that somehow the cacophony can almost sound harmonious. And with that, believe it or not, dear Israel Story listeners around the world, we've reached the end of our mixtape miniseries, And with a mixture of relief and sadness, the end of our third season. This season, which began 14 long months ago, back in April 2017, was our longest season yet, 18 episodes and two specials. We met Shlomo Avni, whose sole wish was to be buried at sea, and Lizzie Doron, who just wanted to escape her Holocaust-surviving mother's nightmares. We heard from couples dealing with a loss of faith, and explored a missed opportunity for a peace agreement in the immediate aftermath of the Six-Day War. We entered the Job-like saga of the two Har'el families of Talpiot in Jerusalem, who both lost a son, named Yuval, within a span of three days in the Lebanon War in 1982. We encountered Aravrit, the hybrid Hebrew-Arabic font, and met Tamer and Sarah, a Palestinian Muslim-slash-Ukrainian-Jewish couple, living on the shores of the Dead Sea. We spent time with outsiders, the Iraqi immigrant Eli Amir, who tried to fit in on Kibbutz Mishmara Emek, the brilliant mathematician Eliyahu Rips, who believed he discovered a biblical cipher, and Eliezer Sonnenschein a struggling artist who terrorized museum curators till he became part of the establishment. We spent a whole hour detailing the demise of an electric car dream and wondering whether it really could have made the world a better place. We heard about homus Wars and Pitcher Wars at Pinati. We investigated the legacy of the Balfour Declaration 100 years later, and peeked into the private life of an unlikely landlady, Golda Meir. We heard from 104-year-old Ruth Richman, our oldest listener, and just a few neighborhoods over from 6-year-old Tamar Friedman, one of our youngest. We trekked up to Tel El Fula, a hilltop in East Jerusalem, where we met brutalized concubines, ambitious kings, and endless piles of trash. We delved into the rapidly growing world of Telegras, the Uber of weed, and heard how Amos Silver became the unlikely mastermind of a green-topia. For Passover, we told Exodus stories of people coming out, the Iranian poet Payam Feli, and the Orthodox gay activist Nadav Schwartz. Just recently, for Shavuot, we told modern-day Ruth and Naomi tales including a sort of adoption of Nepali street girls, a wordless Israeli-Turkish lesbian love affair, and the story of the heart-wrenching friendship between Susie Doring Preston and her would-be mother-in-law, Tirza Eyal. And of course, over the last four weeks, we've been on our mixtape journey, in which we've explored the complexities of Israeli society through the stories behind some of the country's most iconic songs. It's been an amazing ride we've shared together. And you've been with us every step of the way. Your encouraging emails, Facebook posts, tweets, they are what keep us going. Through marathon pitch meetings, countless recordings, long editing nights. So thank you. Thank you for listening, for supporting us, and for allowing us to do what we love to do most. Tell stories that illuminate a different, diverse, and complicated Israel. We bring you all our content for free. But as you can imagine, it costs a lot of money to produce. So if Israel Story is meaningful to you, if it makes you think and laugh and cry and feel, and if you want to help us continue to do what we do, please consider making a donation on our site. And even better, becoming a sustaining member, a member of the Israel Story Mishpacha, the Israel Story family. You can also help us by bringing in new members to this family. Spread the word, send your friends and relatives favorite episodes, post them, share them, tweet them. And if you haven't already done so, go to iTunes and write a review of the show. That bumps us up the rankings and makes us more visible to new listeners. As always, you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. And if you want to sponsor episodes of Season 4 of Israel Story, simply drop us a line at sponsor prx.org. Our feed will be relatively quiet in the upcoming months, but that doesn't mean we've disappeared. We're already hard at work on our next season, which we hope will just continue this surprising, magical, storytelling journey of ours. So during this break, we both have things to do. While we work on creating new episodes, you can catch up on all our past episodes, in both Hebrew and English, on our site, on iTunes, and on any of the other main podcast platforms. And you can do us one more very important favor. Go to our website, IsraelStory.org, and fill out our short listener survey. That will allow us to learn more about you, and understand what you like, what you don't like, what we should do more of, less of, again, you can find the survey on our website, IsraelStory.org. The Mixtape mini-series was all based on our latest live show. Thanks to everyone who made this tour possible, and especially to Hanoch Piven, Nomi Schneider, Mikey Ezrachi, Lior Zaber, Yota Michael Yogev, Elian Mira Kosover, and Shlomo Meital. To Dalit Ofer, who advised us on all our musical selections for the miniseries. And to Sheila Lambert, Megan Whitman, Robin Mankell, Annie Sandler, Ben Moraine, Pamela Lavitt, Elaine Cohen, Eric Siegel, Bar Sananes, Chrissy Reinhardt, Yael Bermano, Valentina Komenko, Rachel Shai, and Rebecca Steinfeld. Thanks also to our dear friends and colleagues at Tablet Magazine. Esther Werdiger, Wayne Hoffman, Alana Newhouse, and Morty Landau. And our PRX family, Kathleen Unwin, Madeline Sullivan, Maggie Taylor, Robert DeBenedictis, Kaylee Nave, and Carrie Hoffman. This episode was edited by Yochai Tal, recorded by Ben Wallach, and mixed by the one and only Sela Weisblum. All the original music throughout the episode was written, arranged, and performed by our wonderful mixtape band, Dotan Mushanov and Ari Wenig. Together with Ruth Danon, Eden Jamshid, and Ronnie Wagner Schmidt. Israel story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Our staff includes Yochai Tal, Shai Satran, Maya Kosover, Roigil Gilron, Zev Levi, Ari Wenig, Hannah Barg, Grotemtzin, Judah Kaufman, Abi Nushatz, Pola Lem, Yoshi Fields, and Joel Shupack. Amishi Harman and we'll be back next season. So till then, Shalom Shalom, and yalla Okay guys, that's a wrap on season 3.
3: Woo! <laughs> And after the two-year-old They go back to another answer People live in pain They find a reason to sleep And with no doubt ve rest ken li fami Salayla has a la-